Right. Uh, good afternoon, Congressman. Are you still there with me? Yes, I am. Right, perfect. We're, we're now uh, all set. It's my pleasure right now to talk to Congressman Tim Murphy, U.S. Congressman for the 18th District of Pennsylvania, and our conversation is going to revolve around Helping Families and Mental Health Crisis Act, uh, House Resolution 2646. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's uh, well, great to be with you. I saw your uh, your news release recently uh, that Congress must deliver treatment before tragedy. As you mentioned, the House of Representatives uh, gave it a near-unanimous vote of 422 to 2 uh, back in the summer, and now it's up to the Senate to pass this. Can you tell us, you know, for the sake of our readers, tell us a little bit about the uh, some of the details of this bill and also why it's so important to pass it? Well, this bill really represents the most major reforms to our mental health system on the federal level in the last 50 years. Uh, Best we can say about our mental health system in America is it spends a lot of money, but it's very disjointed and it's very ineffective. When you look at the major agencies involved with what is supposed to be dealing with our mental health problems in America, the General Accounting Office said there's about 112 at least. They don't work together. There's no accountability. And when we look at what has happened over even the last couple of decades, we've made tremendous strides in many areas of health care. We've seen declining mortality rates for heart disease, lung disease, HIV, AIDS, accidents, stroke, cancer. In all those areas, mortality rates have gone down. But when it comes to suicide and drug overdose deaths, those have skyrocketed. Just another example of our failing system. We see our prisons are filled with the majority of inmates in our county jails, our cities, our states, majority of the inmates have a mental illness problem. We see that our homeless shelters and our streets, uh, many of those, the majority of those have some mental illness. Emergency rooms are overcrowded with the mentally ill. And, of course, you have our county morgues and cemeteries. Also, too many people have lost their lives because they're not getting treatment before tragedy. So our bill corrects that. We start off by having a a new position of the Assistant Secretary of Mental Health and Substance Abuse to coordinating organizing 112 federal agencies. That is so vital. That is like the linchpin of getting things done because our system is broken. We also have major accountability in there for federal grants and programs that have gone to to absurd, wasteful uh, programs such as making collages, interpretive dancing, making masks, a painting, a $22,000 painting that hangs in an office building that deals with mental health. It's a picture of people sitting on a rock. Uh, we see that the federal government has set up special crisis phone lines for people in New England when they're upset about the snow. Uh, sing-along songs, a $400,000 website of sing-along songs for children. And all this while our country does not have enough psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, hospital beds, and families can't get involved. The bill mm-hmm. corrects those other things by providing uh, grants, postdoctoral training grants for more psychologists, more training for psychiatrists, getting more minority psychiatrists on board, uh, eliminating, uh, eliminating the limits on uh, psychiatric hospital beds so we can have places for people to go when they're in the midst of a crisis. And the list goes on and on, all reforms that are essential and will make a big, big difference in getting people treatment. One of the very interesting things that I saw in the proposal was the, the notion of telepsychiatry. We've heard a lot about telemedicine and that becoming more prevalent in insurance plans and also the future of medicine. Could you tell us how telepsychiatry might work? Telepsychiatry is a great addition, and it's so necessary for a couple of reasons. One, 
Over half the counties in America have no psychiatrists, psychologists, or social workers, period. And because of that, even when people have money, they can't get care. So it's a huge, huge problem. Uh, the second thing is when a person visits a family physician or a parent brings a child to the pediatrician, when they have the warm handoff that they can meet right then, a psychiatrist, psychologist, because they've identified a problem, that warm handoff means about 95% follow-up chances for someone. Whereas if they're given a card and say, call this person when you have a chance, it drops below 45%. So that helps as well. The other issue is because we have such a tremendous shortage of psychiatrists and psychologists, um, this means that if there's one available in the doctor's office, uh, they don't have to get in a car, drive to another office, or go somewhere else. They're immediately available. It saves all that travel time. It means we can all sometimes double the amount of people that they can serve uh, through all this. So it is a huge asset. And, of course, the other asset that goes with this, too, is coordinating services between physical medicine and behavioral medicine. We know that a person, for example, with a chronic illness is twice as likely to have depression. Untreated depression doubles the cost of health care. And by having the uh, mental health professionals and the, 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 the physical health professionals working together, we can actually improve the quality of their lives, reduce the mortality and morbidity of their illnesses, uh, and, and get them early treatment, which is much more cost-effective. So, now, you would mentioned as well that uh, this over 10 years will save $5 million because there's a lot of focus on, on – on, uh, and there's a lot of focus on youth as well. So this is basically about efficiency, about greater care. Um, you know, the issue of, uh, of uh, incarceration is a really big one across this nation, and uh, one of our local chairs for Nashville Share um, has uh, started working with local health, uh, health services basically to stop getting mental, mentally ill people from immediately going down the prison pipeline. Uh, how would that, the, the, the bill address this particular need, especially those who may have a mental illness and may end up in, in a jail cell because because of some kind of incident. We've seen the, the incident, as, as you had mentioned, the news release about the Iowa, the, the tragic uh, murder of, of uh, two Iowa policemen. You also had this situation of a woman who was shot by a policeman and, and killed in, in the New York City area. Uh, if you could address that a little bit, please. Sure. Well, one aspect of this is making sure that police are trained how to handle the situation. It's estimated last year about 250 mentally ill people died in a violent encounter with the police. So someone who may have attacked the policeman with a gun or with a knife or a bat and the policeman shoot to defend themselves. We want to see those stop. Uh, by providing police with more training on how to handle a situation when they first encounter it so it does not accelerate and they get it to decelerate, uh, by having some money available in our bill where uh, police can also use that to hire a mental health professional to ride with them to these situations can make a massive difference in their care uh, in, in how they deal with, it, with a situation before it ends up in a tragedy. Uh, the other aspect here is by having people getting treated early on, uh, it makes a massive difference in how this is handled. So part of our bill is to fund a program called Response After Initial Schizophrenic Episode, also known as RAISE, because we know when you first identify symptoms, if you get people treatment early, uh, it improves the prognosis and reduces costs. About half of the cases of severe mental illness emerge by age 14, 75% by age 24. But you've got to be watching out for it, and you have to have providers there. When, uh, when you do have that, it makes a big difference in their prognosis. When you don't, the problems continue on. And here's where it gets worse. A person with severe mental illness such as schizophrenia or bipolar disease or severe depression or schizoaffective disorder, 
uh, such persons, when they are not in treatment and they have been exposed to violence or drugs or alcohol or something, they're about 15 times more likely to be violent than someone who um, is not in uh, treatment. And so by getting them treatment, you've already prevented a lot of problems from the onset. And then the uh, other aspects of this is we've got to make sure that by having more providers, uh, by doing more in the forensic area, we actually have, uh, we hope to have people around who are um, uh, making sure that people have treatment in prisons, et cetera. Uh, about 80% of the people in, uh, in jail do not have any treatment at all. Uh, and that's a sad, sad state of affairs. Uh, you know, we wouldn't take a person with a heart attack and say, we're going to send you to jail. Uh, we wouldn't do that with cancer. But that's what we do with the mentally ill, the worst place for them, because many times they're neglected, they're abused, they tend to serve a sentence four times longer than the rest of the population because of other conflicts they get in, in jail, um, even for the same crime that a non-mentally ill person would engage in, such as shoplifting. Um, so by having these things together, we can get that person back on the track of treatment uh, instead of on the track of violence in jail. Now, related to another issue, just about substance abuse, we obviously know that the opioid epidemic is, uh, is, is just a big problem. It's an especially big problem in Tennessee. Tennessee has some of the highest rates of prescription rate abuse in the country. Uh, specific to that, I know that the, the CARA bill was passed over the summer. Is there any relation or any kind of connection with that um, in this particular bill that would address substance abuse issues? Our bill addresses it in terms of by having that uh, person who is the head of the, who is the assistant secretary of mental health and substance abuse. We require that that person be a psychiatrist or psychologist, professional in the field. Up to this point, there was no requirement, and we have had people like lawyers or other researchers involved, where this is literally not their field of practice. We would not take someone who doesn't know anything about the Army and make them the, the head of the Army, the, 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 the top general. We wouldn't take a non-physician and make them the Surgeon General. All these things are important. So by taking all these agencies that are out there, having this oversight, making sure they coordinate services together, is an absolutely vital point here, and one that we think is intuitively obvious, but it's very sloppy, because you have the majority of people who may have a substance abuse disorder may also have a mental health disorder. You've got to treat them both. If you treat one and not the other, you're just going to have the same problem cycling through. And by having more providers, important. Now, we don't have enough providers who are specialists, specialists in the mental health, excuse me, in the substance abuse area. Our bill doesn't directly address that. I want to get that in the future. And here's a statistic why. Out of every uh, thousand people, excuse me, out of, out of every thousand people who have a substance abuse problem, 900 will not seek treatment. Mm -hmm. Of the remaining 100, 37 can't find care. Of the remaining 63, only six will find evidence-based care from a trained provider. Mm -hmm. So only six out of 1,000. That's a pretty sad state of affairs that we have in this whole process and one that we can no longer tolerate here. That's why we've got to make some big, uh, get, get more providers. And we're hoping states, by having uh, a greater view over them, by having more accountability of how funds are spent, will focus more on getting this coordination of services between mental health and substance abuse disorders. I was pleased to see that the entire Tennessee delegation voted in favor of this bill uh, last summer. Uh, and currently in Tennessee, at the state legislative level, there's an effort by the Speaker of the House to 
create a, a three-star health plan that would initially focus on Vita to address that, uh, that uh, working poor gap and would address substance abuse and mental health uh, issues first. Um, are there incentives in this bill to uh, help states be able to provide services? And, and what, what sort of ways would the federal government work with the states so that they could uh, offer this type of treatment? Our first uh, goal here is to get data so we can begin to look at that. It's pretty amazing that you can't really track the cost that states have or the federal government has. Uh, the federal government does put in about $130 billion a year towards a wide range of mental health services, but the vast majority of that is just disability payments without real treatment in many areas. But we're flying blind here, quite frankly. We don't know what happens in terms of states' costs for individuals with mental illness and severe mental illness. Uh, they may not even look at what's the cost of incarcerating a person, the police involved, the arrest, the criminal justice system, the emergency rooms, uh, the looping through the hospital system because they have chronic illnesses that go untreated. All of those things together are not tracked. And the federal government doesn't look at these things together with Medicaid. So, for example, if the siloed information may mean that Medicaid is only looking at uh, what are their costs, but they don't look at them really very well. Here's a couple examples. 5% of Medicaid users account for 55% of all Medicaid spending, and they are virtually all mentally ill. So one would think if you focus more on getting people the right treatment, you might make a big difference. That means by tracking them, uh, wrapping services around them more carefully, because they tend to die uh, 10 to 25 years sooner than the rest of the population and be big users of the healthcare system, because a person with mental illness, severe mental illness, 75% of them have at least one chronic illness, 50% have at least two, and a third have at least three chronic illnesses, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, infectious disease, um, HIV. There's a wide range of illnesses there. And because of all those, you've got to track and help people more carefully. So this is part of the whole database that we want states to collect, and then we can move another uh, level with regard to incentives. But right now, we don't even have that part. Some of our, our, uh, our numbers here uh, in terms of criminal justice and the health system, uh, the uh, community housing system, the education system, we are not collecting that data, and we've got to know first before we can make some sound decisions. Congressman, this is very, very informative. Is there anything else that we haven't addressed that you'd like to talk about? Well, I'd like to tell you about the, the body count of how bad this is in America. Sure. In, in 2015, uh, these are the numbers. There's 43,000 deaths by suicide, 47,000 deaths by drug overdose, and probably higher, but we don't know because many places don't collect the data. There was about 1,000 homicide deaths by persons mentally ill, even though most mentally ill are no more violent than the rest. And there's 250 deaths uh, in a violent police encounter. But the biggest group, are the mentally ill who tend to die much sooner than the rest of the population. Uh, and that is the homeless by hypothermia or, or other problems or the other mentally ill who uh, have other chronic illnesses. That total number is estimated by Tom Insel, the former head of the National Institute of Mental Health, to be about 350,000 mental illness-related deaths last year wow. in 2015. Now, let me put that number in perspective. That is more mental illness-related deaths in 2015 than the total United States of America military combat deaths combined from World War I, Korea, 
Vietnam, Desert Storm, Afghanistan, and Iraq wars in one year. And that's just the death. That's not all those who continue to suffer uh, in silence, ignored by society in a massively costly way. So if we care about life, if we care about making a difference here, uh, if you care about the cost, all those things direct us to move towards it. And my hope is that when, this, when we get back to town, the Senate moves quickly on this. And because this was a near-unanimous bill, it came out of committee unanimously, totally bipartisan, I hope the Senate adds to it and takes nothing away. This is the culmination of years of hearings, of, of my going to about 12 or 13 different states for these, hearing the same story over and over again. We have got to have the Assistant Secretary of Mental Health and Subsidies. We have to have a point person in charge. We can't just have continue to do this same thing over and over again and expect different results. We have to have accountability for federal spending. We have to make sure we're putting this towards uh, really identify those at highest risk and those with symptoms and sending the help to them, not the goofy and frivolous things that the government has been doing before. And we have got to build our workforce. If we fail to do those things, people will see more and more tax dollars going in the wrong direction uh, and wasted without providing real treatment. Uh, we will continue to see families grieving for the loss of their loved ones by suicide, by homicide, by drug overdose deaths, by losing someone to homelessness, when we could really provide changes. And that's the treatment before tragedy, that this bill, Helping Families and Mental Health Crisis Act, H.R. 2646, focuses on. So my hope is that people will contact their senators and say, please pass this bill. Don't weaken it. Do more if you can. But let's not once again throw the mentally ill aside and say we're not going to do it this year because the daily body count is 959 deaths per day, per day. We've had tens of thousands who have died just since we passed this bill out of the House in July, uh, maybe 100-plus thousand. We'll reach that soon. We can't continue to do things this way. So I hope the Senate acts on this. We get this done. We get to this present death because the sooner we do that, the sooner we can begin to save lives and, and improve the quality of other lives. What, is the, what are the prospects of the Senate doing that? Have you had any conversations with Senate leadership or, or uh, any other senators who might be sympathetic to making sure that this gets passed uh, when they come back? Of all the senators I've talked to, I've not talked to anyone who's opposed to this. The question is how we move through, and this, this really is a lot of this in the hands of Mitch McConnell and Lamar Alexander, how they move it. Uh, they've got some other great ideas in some of their programs in the Senate. Uh, one is to improve disability uh, determination rights for veterans. That's very, very important. One is some programs that put more money into community mental health programs. That's great. I want to see those things. But we've got to have the Assistant Secretary of Mental Health and Substance Abuse as the key point person leader. We've got to have a mental health policy that cleaning up the grant programs. We've got to put money into building a bigger workforce and getting our hospitals back so we can deal with, uh, with providing treatment. That's essential, and I hope the senators will keep those things intact that we have in our bill. Well, Congressman, I want to thank you so much for your time. I, I appreciate it, and uh, I'll uh, follow up with Carly if I have any additional questions, but this has been very valuable, and I'm uh, going to be writing something up uh, for next week uh, right after the election, uh, and also include this in a podcast uh, that we'll, uh, we'll have with the column. But uh, thank you so much again for uh, your time. Thanks. I appreciate that. By the way, I don't know if you know that I went out to visit Trust Point Hospital and I talked to a few from Acadia Healthcare, and their stories were the same as everywhere else that is around the nation. The same great, great people out there 
wonderful, caring uh, people trying to do what they can, uh, but uh, but massive gaps in the system, and we can't continue to throw people away like that. So, thank you. Very good. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye now.